Hey, Deserving Listeners. Today I'm going to answer patron emails. This first email is from patron Kim. She writes, I am really suffering right now. Yesterday, I got an abortion at 13 weeks. It was a hard choice to come to for me. The pregnancy was unplanned, and I originally wanted abortion, but then I decided to keep the baby, and then later I decided to get an abortion. The father was very involved and was really sad when I told him. We were supposed to be together, but with the, with the pandemic, he was stuck overseas. It was so difficult for me to be alone. We've both lost our work and our relationship is new, so my fears led me to the abortion. Immediately after, I feel regret. I feel the most pain and grief I have ever felt in my life. I feel like I have killed this baby. By the way, I am pro-choice and I'm non-religious. I have been trying to find support, but it seems that most are religion-based. I am deciding to treat this as a real grief, and I'm trying to find your episodes on grief and trying to find your book on grief. Do you know anything about abortion and guilt and grief? Do you think part of what I'm feeling is societal pressure? Anything would be helpful. End of email. Yeah, this is awful, especially since you had for a while resolved to keep the child. For that span of time, you imagined having that child and raising that child and seeing that child grow up and going to school and you know having maybe their first prom or something and so on. And, and now all that is over. And that is incredibly sad. A huge loss for all involved. It hurts because you are human. It wouldn't um, now, I will say for some people when they get an abortion, some of you listening out there have probably had abortions, and there's varying reactions. For some people, it, it doesn't produce the same meaning and the same amount of grief. But for many people, it does, because of course it does. It's a, it's a child that at some level of development was alive and the decision was made to um, abort that, that life. And in our society, we like to gloss over that, uh, depending on what echo chamber you're, you're in, as if it's just a procedure, it's just a simple little thing, and there shouldn't be many emotions about it. Now, many of you absolutely do recognize the emotions about it, but yeah, our society definitely plays a role in compounding the problem for you. It's what we call disenfranchised grief. I didn't coin the term. I forget who coined the term. I should probably look it up. But it's called disenfranchised grief, and it's basically types of grief that are ignored or unacknowledged or um, just you know disenfranchised. If your mother had died and you had an altar in your house to her, like uh, some pictures and maybe some trinkets, and you had it up for the rest of your life, you had it there in the living room, this little, this little nook for your mother, maybe her ashes, that would be completely okay. Now, some people would think that was going a little too far, but most people would recognize, okay, she really loved her mother, and she has a little altar to her deceased mother. 
If you have an altar for your aborted child, that is not okay in our society. Not only is it not okay, but you will be ridiculed. You will be seen as mentally ill, maybe that, you know, you're holding on to something, you know, creepy or morbid or, you know, there's something wrong with you. Of course, having a deceased um, mother altar would also produce some of those feelings, but definitely if you had an altar for an aborted child or put it another way, if you post on Facebook, my mother died yesterday, I'm really sad. You're going to get a lot of, you know, support. If you post on the internet, I got an abortion yesterday and I'm really sad. You're going to get a lot of confused and random responses. Uh, And definitely people are going to think things that they're not going to post about you that are judgy and negative. And this isn't even include the societal messaging around you being, you know, depending on what political uh, spectrum you're on, that you're some kind of murderer or something, that you've committed some crime against humanity or God or something. And along those lines in the politics, if you're in a liberal echo chamber and you talk about the downside of abortion, some people are going to judge you and even chastise you. Um, I want to say something that should make sense to everyone, but you know, you can be pro-choice and recognize the downside of having an abortion. Now, things are changing and things are getting better, but it's, it tends to be pretty politicized. If, if you just stand up and say, like, I just want to talk about how abortion can, be, um, can produce a lot of guilt and a lot of regret and a lot of bad feelings for people and how it is ending a life. Now, you know, what sort of life is that? We could talk about the semantics of that, but it's not hard to imagine for patron Kim that she feels that she ended a life. Uh, that's how she's receiving it, and that's that's how a lot of people do. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm also saying a lot of people don't. A lot of people might think of it as, well, when you have a miscarriage or something, you know, we can go into the details on that, but that's not the point. I one time had a massive argument with a friend of mine in the 90s about this. She was pro-choice, as am I, by the way, 100 billion percent, by the way. And I just wanted to have a conversation about the decision to have an abortion would be difficult for people and that it would produce difficult feelings. You know, forget about the, the law. Let's just talk about the human experience of for whether you're the person carrying the child or you're the other biological parent. Um, that for both biological parents and, and their family members and their friends, you know, it takes a village to, to raise a child. Everyone is losing something. Everyone has feelings about it. And to acknowledge that to my friend was to basically side with the anti-pro-choice people. And it was a huge argument, and it never got resolved. And so that complicates things for you. I'm guessing a lot of you people listening right now have complicated feelings about what I just said. And I have complicated feelings about it. Again, I'm 100 billion percent pro-choice. And let's just put that aside. Let's also talk about the reality of the emotional uh, elements of this. Now, you mentioned that you're looking for my book on grief. I've talked about this book. I don't know if I'm ever going to finish it, primarily because of this podcast, honestly. 
the amount of time it would take me to finish that book would basically take a couple years of dedicated time. That would mean I would probably just have to take a break from the podcast for a couple years. And I only have so many years left on the planet. I'd rather do two years of the podcast than write this book. Now, I do have a pretty lengthy manuscript that is almost done, basically. And so I, I, I'll figure out a way to publish it either in a like a chapter or I don't know. Definitely a deep dive, you know, for everyone to listen to. So getting back to you, Paige and Kim, and your experience, you're, at, you're looking for resources. Well, here's what I always talk about with my uh, supervisees and my clients and myself is forget about everything that you've heard about grief related to stages because there's, there's no empirical evidence that people universally follow stages. You might follow the five stages of grief um, popularized by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, but it's not likely that you will. It's extremely likely that you're going to follow what is called a dual process theory, which empirically has been found to be nearly universal, if not universal, to people as they go through a difficult loss. The dual process theory is that we have two positions or two states or two vibes. One is the grieving state and the other is the rebuilding state. So at sometimes we're going to be grieving and sometimes we're going to be rebuilding. And there are two modes. So when we're grieving, we're feeling, we're hurting, we're talking, we're regretting, we're getting angry, we're feeling alone, we're feeling ignored, we're feeling guilty. We might be crying, we might be unable to sleep, we get depressed, we can't enjoy things, but we want to talk about it. We have urges to talk about it. We'll have waves of grief that overcome us. We'll involve ourselves in rituals and memorializing and so on. You know, you're in the grief. You're, you're really thinking about it. You're reminiscing, depending on the loss. So that's the grieving state. And that sounds like the state that you're in right now. The other state, the other mode is rebuilding. This is when you're getting back on your feet. You're getting things done. You're probably not talking about it. You're maybe experiencing joy. And you're trying to live as normally as possible. So this is the rebuilding mode. This is when you're not having feelings. You're not memorializing. You're not involved in the rituals, probably. You're not crying about it. You're not having waves of feeling. So those are the two modes. And what they found empirically for grief to proceed as healthy as possible and not get complicated is for the individual to move naturally as their body needs to. This is not how they describe it, but this is how I describe it. For everyone to move naturally as their body needs to between these two states. Now, because of our society and because of the system around us and because of our own ideas of how we should grieve or this kind of thing or our own shame, then it'll prevent us from naturally moving between these two states. Now, you might be in a grief state for like three weeks and then a rebuilding state for like one day and then a grief state for like 10 minutes and then a rebuilding state for three months. Some people, after a massive loss, will be in a rebuilding state for like a year. Uh, I, I know someone who lost a, a family member years ago, and for the first year after the loss, she, she didn't have any grief feelings. She cried a little bit with her family, but she always wondered, is something wrong with me? And then a year later, boom, everything hit, and then that's when her body was ready to do that. Sometimes our body just isn't ready to have that grief, and 
we need to rebuild because it's too much for us. The rebuilding mode is one, a effort to give us a break from the grief and also an effort to say, well, we have to move on. We seem to evolve that, which makes sense, right? Back on the Serengeti 200,000 years ago, we undoubtedly had the similar, if not the same emotional sent, you know, reactions to, to loss. And when we lost a family member 200,000 years ago, uh, we would grieve, but we also, we also had things to do. If we just sat there on the ground and cried, a, a predator would come and kill us. So it, we evolved the ability physically in our body or neurologically to switch between these two modes as needed. So there's a lot of barriers to this. And so each one of us has to figure out where our body wants to go in a particular moment. So things that will interfere with these two modes is for you, patron Kim, as you uh, grieve, you'll want to talk about it. But you'll feel guilty and, and shame, and you won't want to tell people because you're worried other people are going to judge you. So then you're not going to talk about it, and that interrupts your grieving process. Or you're going to be so depressed, and you're going to be beating yourself up so much that you'll bounce away from the grief because it's overwhelming to you because of the self-hatred that's involved with the grieving process. This is where therapy comes into play. Therapists uh, who have a good, strong, attached relationship with a client can intuit which mode is helpful given where their body seems to want to go. And the therapist can kind of help them uh, navigate those modes as they have them. Uh, another uh, barrier, there's lots of barriers, but another common barrier is some people will, you know, it'll be a short time after the loss and they'll find themselves watching a comedy and laughing or wanting to go out with their friends. And they'll think, well, that's not okay. I'm a bad person if I go out with my friends, you know, because of this thing that happened to me. Well, that's preventing your body's natural movement towards rebuilding. Your body is like, I need to not think about it for just an evening. I need to hang out with my friends. I need to uh, relax I need to give myself a break. I will feel the grief again later, but I need a break from it. And that self-judgment prevents the person from naturally moving to the rebuilding mode, and then that complicates the grief. The body needs to be able to naturally move back and forth uh, to those different modes, and the body knows what to do. But because of society that we internalize and we oppress ourselves, we shame ourselves, we silence ourselves... Um, then that complicates things. When people silence us, then that complicates things. When people judge us. As another example, let's say your spouse dies, and then six months later, you, you're dating. You're on Tinder. Well, you know, depending on the situation, maybe that's just what your body needs to do. And your body's just like, I need to rebuild. And uh, that means not thinking about the fact that my husband died all the time. I need, I need to have some levity in my life. I need to move on. I'm always going to think about him and I'm always going to grieve him. But right now, I feel like I need to start dating as a distraction or, I don't know, just to have some romance in my life. But if people saw you on Tinder six months after your husband died, you get a shit ton of judgment from people, right? So you don't do it. Or 
like I said, you want to have a memorial for the aborted child. You want to involve your family and your friends. You want to post it on Facebook or Instagram or whatever in the same way that you would memorialize any other close you know, person to you or just the fact that you went through something difficult at the very least. But again, because of judgment from society, you don't do that because uh, you don't want to be you know, ridiculed and chastised and shunned and judged and yelled at and rejected. So figure out for yourself, talk with other people, particularly your partner, you guys, you and your partner are in this together. You're both grieving. You're both, um, you know, aware of the situation. And so keep talking about it, but notice where your body wants to go and allow that to happen. Involve more people, involve people you can trust. You're involving me in this process now, which is good. That's you in the grieving mode. You're the grieving mode part of you reached out to me and said, I've got I've to email this podcaster and, and tell him what's going on because I, I, I need, you know, when you're Googling things, that's you trying to, you're grieving. And there's, it's messy. There's no like formula to it. Uh, there's, there's no way to relieve the grief. The, the difficult feelings are likely to happen, and I told you this to you over email, it's possible that you're going to have those difficult feelings for the rest of your life. And that's a difficult thing to hear that this abortion might be a pain, might, might, uh, you might be in pain and you might feel guilt for the rest of your life about this one event. You know, we don't like to think about that. We like, oh, you know, uh, well, you recover and you, and you move on. You pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you move on with life. And maybe that'll happen. But it's also possible that, uh, you know, periodically this is, you know, cyclically going to come back and it's going to hurt and you're going to have all those feelings. Now, if you allow yourself to go back and forth naturally between grieving and rebuilding, it will become less and the rebuilding phases will get longer. The grieving phases will get shorter and less intense. And, uh, you know, time will heal. Well, the process will heal and the process takes time. But the grief will never go away. I, I, every significant grief I've been through has never gone away. And it's annoying, man. Like, I, all the grief that kind of comes and goes in my psyche, I, every time it happens, there's a little part of me that's just like, really? It's still happening? <laughs> like, uh, I thought this was over. You know, I thought I had resolved this. Um, if it's a big enough loss, if, it's, if, if it rocks the soul and the psyche enough, you can expect it to last for the rest of your life. And this is one of those losses that can um, last, particularly, like I said, because it's disenfranchised. Your, your grieving mode might be extended longer because of the inability to share it with society and other people in the way that is appropriate and natural and healthy for you. So reach out to me, you know, um, the other thing that I, I want to say is like I was referring to earlier, maybe a ritual, maybe a memorial. There's a reason why we tend to do that. We have cemeteries, we have funerals, we have wakes. There's a reason why we do that. It's not just this thing that costs money or this thing that churches do. It's a, it's a human thing. 
there's a reason why we developed these well before society and civilization began. I mean, there's evidence, uh, I don't know how long ago, of humans burying their loved ones with flowers. It's a ritual. Um, they probably said words, you know. Uh, we need to do that. It's, it provides meaning to us. It's a part of our process. And every memorialization uh, is different. And so you can choose how you want to memorialize this loss to you. Regarding the guilt, that is, that's a complicated thing. You know, I, I, could, I could say something easy for me to say, like, well, don't feel guilty. And people around you might say that to you. Well, you don't have anything to feel guilty about. You know, you made the right choice. And maybe that'll mitigate the guilt, but maybe it won't. Because you are there with what happened. And people can try to help you with the guilt, but, you know, it might not work. So that's just part of the grief process. Keep talking about it. Keep thinking about it. Keep processing it. You know, um, cry about it. Most of us are guilty of things, and most of us feel guilt when we have a difficult loss. Most of us, you know, like a very common guilty feeling is your parent dies, and you feel guilty for not having told them some things that you always wanted to tell them. Or you feel guilty because you had that one fight 10 years ago and you never really apologized. Now, along those lines, you know, everyone do what you can to uh, preempt that guilt by doing what you can while people are still with us. But, but some of that guilt is very, very common. You know, there's a whole section in that book that I am writing about the guilt involved in loss. And again, we don't like to talk about that in our society. It's just like, well, don't feel guilty. It's not your fault. That's our response. Therapists included, by the way, you know, that's wrong. You know, don't, that's, those are bad automatic thoughts. Don't, don't feel that guilt. And there's no solution to it, right? Cause, cause if the person feels guilty, it's just like, well, what can I do with that? Other than to tell them they shouldn't feel guilty because of X, Y, and Z. Well, it's the same thing with grief. I can't do anything about your grief, Kim. In fact, it's human and good on some level you're having grief because when we have grief, it means we care about our attachments. We care about people close to us. We care about the things we have attachments with. If you didn't have grief, then you also wouldn't have the enjoyment of attaching to things. And we need both. There's the yin and the yang. Without one, you can't have the other. So we get the glory of attachment and the terribleness of the grief. Otherwise, we're robots or cockroaches. I somehow don't imagine cockroaches have attachments in grief. Maybe they do. I don't know. So it's, it's a part of the human condition and everyone's been there. I mean, that, that's something that I think about when I um, think about my grief and I, you know, when I was studying grief, that it goes back to the ancients. You know, ancient writers um, were uh, like uh, the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius was, the philosopher emperor was uh, talking about grief himself. And I 
include that in my book as well. And I found it fascinating that 2,000 years ago, or however long ago, um, people were struggling with grief in a very similar way to, that we do today. You know, beating this self up of just like, I should be able to move on, or, you know, these kinds of ideas of like, hanging on to the past is bad, and I, I need to move on and produce and, you know, be a citizen. And, you know, why am I thinking about this? It, it's just, it's so human. And so what you're going through is so human. And all you other listeners out there, I hope, or I don't know, I hope you are, if you need to be thinking about your own grief, how it relates to this and your own disenfranchised grief, a pet that you lost a while back, an ex-partner of yours that died after you broke up, a divorce, a breakup, a friend that you lost, moving to another town and missing your old house. Um, you know, did I say pets? <laughs> I think I said pets. Um, losing a job, losing a, 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 an ability, like the ability to see or the ability to walk or the ability to live without pain. The, you know, these are, these are losses that we go through and it's, it fucking sucks, man. It sucks. Life is suffering and we can't do anything about that. We like to think we can do something about it. And, you know, we can with some suffering, but life will have suffering. My God, life has suffering. And the fact that we act like it doesn't or that we don't want to hear about it just makes things worse for people like Kim. So I welcome your suffering into my life as much as I can, as much as I have in this moment, Kim. And I'm sure all the listeners are with you too. Keep talking about it. Um, don't um, give in to the haters. Um, social. Here, here's another. Here's another thing that I tell people to do: is socialize other people to be good support people for you. So, say there's a friend of yours, and you're really not quite sure to, about how they feel about it. Go to them and say, "I have something to tell you." And I've given a lot of thought and you're one of like the few people that I feel like I can trust with this, but I'm worried that you're not going to support me in the way that I, I need you to support me. So I'm going to tell you, and then you tell the person and you're like, okay, here's what I need you to do. I need you to not look for solutions. I need you to not try to fix it. I need you to not try to take away the feelings. I need you to not try to convince me not to feel guilty. I just need you to hear me and listen and be with me and and when I'm rebuilding, then, you know, hang out with me and let's have some fun so I can distract myself. And when I'm crying, I need you to just let me cry. You don't need to do anything. You just sit there. You know, I don't need you to fix it. Just just be, you know, sometimes we have to tell other people because our society doesn't tell anyone how to help people who are grieving. And so sometimes we as grievers have to tell other people how to help us. And, you, you know, you just keep telling them because most people want to do what they can. But they've been told really stupid things by society and they, they think they're doing the best thing, hopes and prayers, that kind of stuff. And um, they just don't know because our society is just so adolescent when it comes to this sort of thing. Anyway. So yeah, I, I'm with you. Let's take a break and when we get back. Let's answer some more emails. All right, we're back from the break. This next email is from Upper Tier Patron Terry. She writes, I would like to ask you about a situation in my own relationships. I have a boyfriend for over a year, and we are very happy. 
We're planning on moving in together within the next few months. My boyfriend's family has a very specific dynamic. He is the only child and has a father who has been absent from the family. The mother is a very anxious person and is pretty much dependent on my boyfriend who drives her wherever she needs to go, even if he has some other plans. The fact that they are codependent is a way, in a way worries me. I am not sure how he will be able to live with me as a couple without the feeling of needing to help his mother when she feels alone and anxious or needs something from him. It is clearly a very painful topic for him to discuss, and he even gets angry whenever I want to discuss it. He says he hates going over to her place and is very anxious when he does so, but still, he says he feels that he has to do it. I feel helpless. I do not want to make my boyfriend decide me or your mother. What do you think about it? Do you think it is possible to change the situation? Should I try to interfere and give them some of my own views? Should I be worried that this is a fixed family dynamic that will never be repaired? End of email. Yeah, good, good questions. Um, so, um, you know, it's good that you're thinking about this. And it's a common enough situation that I've seen it before to know that there's no easy answer. Some people might say to this, yeah, you got to give him an ultimatum. It is you or his mother. He has to grow up. He can't be a mama's boy his, his whole life. Or some people might say, he needs to tell her to back off. He's a grown man. He, has, he needs to have his own life. Or they, you know, some people might say, she needs to go to her own therapy. That woman's crazy. It, the fact is, is, it's never that easy. You know, people can say that, people can think it, and then there's the actual life that people live. So let's review your options. So the first option is you can pressure therapy, not only for her, for her anxiety, but also for her and him, and also for the three of you. It's worth a shot, but it's really hard to convince people to go to therapy when they don't want to. If I was to roll the die, if I was to make a bet, I would say that um, you're not going to be able to convince them. But, you know, it's worth a shot. The second option is you could pressure him to change. And it might work. It won't solve her problem. She's probably going to have more anxiety. And she'll have to find someone else to depend on. And he's going to go through a lot of guilt. And two of you might get in a lot of fights. But certainly, you know, in the long term, I could see something like that happening if you talk with him a lot. You know, he, it sounds like he's quite ambivalent about it himself. He, he's, he, you said that he hates to do this stuff, but he feels like he has to do it. So maybe there's like a slow transition away that, that you can um, sort of pressure him to do. It might not work, like I said, and it might backfire, but, you know, that's another option. Another option is the two of you develop a compassionate way of trying to help her in the long term. Just brainstorming here about different things you might be able to do on this option is, essentially in this option, you're leaning in. So brainstorming about this is you call her every day, and talk to her like you actually call her instead of you trying to distance yourself from her you actually call her every day and talk with her this will help you develop a good relationship with her it might make it easy for you to affect change in that two-person system it might actually cause her to be less anxious because she might actually be worried she's going to lose her son 
And if she feels bonded to you, maybe her anxiety will go down and she won't need to call on your son as much. The other thing that could happen from this is you might end up just kind of liking her in a better way. And therefore, you won't be as threatened by her presence in the system. Another thing uh, leaning into the situation that, that could help is he spends quality time with her, but less time with her. So instead of him resisting and um, just, you know, oh, she's calling and, you know, he runs over to help her. Maybe he goes over there voluntarily, spends quality time, gets her to relax, and then that lasts longer than the sort of reactive uh, time spent with her. And then again, over time, if that relationship becomes more secure, maybe she doesn't need to see him and won't be as demanding as much. The other thing you could do is maybe help her regulate her emotions. There are ways of influencing people. Like, again, if you have a good relationship with her and you notice that she's anxious about going outside by herself, you could start talking with her about that. You, you know, you say, look, I'm not going to pressure you, but it sounds like you, you get real anxious about leaving the house. You know, I get anxious about things sometimes too. And I did this workbook. Do you, would you like to do this workbook together to, you know, figure out how both of us can cure ourselves of our anxiety? If you have a good relationship with her, you know, she might go along with that and then she might see the benefit. Again, that's you leaning into her. That's you trying to help. Um, and then eventually, if her anxiety goes down, then she, you know, potentially won't need uh, her son as, as much. The other situation um, uh, is, um, well, sticking with this situation of you leaning in, um, it might work. It might not work. It might take a lot of time. It might be really hard to pull off. It might be really hard for you because you would have to lean into her and you, you sounds like you don't really like her that much. But this approach might be really good because um, this situation sounds like it's here to stay. And so rather than just trying to fight it and creating a lot of problems as you're already detecting, maybe if you leaned into the situation, it might actually get a lot better for all three of you. Like I said, you might actually help her uh, to relieve her so she doesn't need as much, but you might also just kind of like her so you're not bothered by her. The other uh, option here is to do nothing and just bear it. Totally viable option. Again, I, I don't know which one to do, but you might develop a cost-benefit analysis of the situation and say, for me to do something to either pressure someone or try to help her is going to be so aggravating to me and create more problems than I want that it's not really worth risking. And so I need to just figure out how to accept the situation. One of the mantras you might be able to follow is you're in a relationship, not just with him, but when you entered into a relationship with him, you entered into a relationship with him and her. The two of them have been through a lot together. You said that the father abandoned the family. He's an only child. The two of them probably have a lot of traumas that are linked. There's probably a lot of enmeshment there, a lot of dependency, and a lot of anxiety about being alone about being abandoned. And there might be previous abandonment in the mother's life when she was growing up, probably likely some, some level of rejection. And so having a uh, acceptance of that, just like, you know, this is just emotionally where they're at. And to change this, it's, it, you know, it's going to be pretty hard. So, you know, maybe that is um, an option. Maybe that's the best option. I don't know. But certainly that is one of the options. The other option is that 
you get your own systems therapist to help you with the problem. There's a lot that can be done just from your end. So systems theory tells us and demonstrates to us through empirical observation that when one person changes in a system, the other people have to change. So you could go to a systems-minded therapist, talk about the situation, and the two of you could devise a way so that you could change your behavior and your reactivity, your emotions, so that it affects the two of them. And you might actually be able to alleviate a lot of the because right now you're in a triangle, if you've heard me talk about triangulation. Um, you're in a conflict with the mother, and the boyfriend is stuck in between, and he's, he's being pulled into that conflict is one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is the mom and the son are having a conflict, and you're being pulled into it. And once one of the, person, uh, one of the people in the triad and the triangle becomes more differentiated, and listen to, listen to my episodes on differentiation, then there's less, like, there's less need for triangulation, less need for dysfunctional triangulation. There's a lot that can be done. I have talked with individuals in therapy and um, you know, coached them, not coaching in the profession sense, but talked with them about how to change how they see things, how they behave, how they participate in the triangulation, how they participate in the routines of the family how they can be more differentiated in the spaces of the family. Like one of the things that could be happening systemically is as you become closer to your boyfriend and as your boyfriend becomes closer to you, that raises her anxiety. That actually raises anxiety for um, her and him, that her anxiety goes up and his anxiety goes up because he's worried about her. And he might even be kind of secretly worried about himself because he's never been away from his mom as well. So, they might be experiencing a lot of anxiety of if we're not close, then we're distant. If we're not dependent on each other, then we're going to fly apart and we're going to lose um, this you know, home base that has always made me feel safe. And um, by you trying to fight that and by you giving a vibe, uh, it sounds like you're giving very explicit communication to your boyfriend, but the mother-in-law might actually be picking up on this, that you disapprove and you're actually trying to pull them apart. Well, they might respond to that by tightening the grip on each other. And so you might be inadvertently causing the problem that you're trying to fix by your emotionality, your fusion, your indifferentiation, your enmeshment with the situation. And with a, a systems therapist, we'll be able to talk with you about how you can extract yourself from that emotional field so that the other two people might actually calm down a little bit and the system will be able to progress naturally. One of the big things that family therapists studied and and talked about and observed was that families go through transitions. And in order for the family to go through the transition in a healthy manner, there has to be flexibility And in order for there to be flexibility, there has to be differentiation. In order for there to be differentiation, there has to be as minimal, the minimal level of anxiety possible. And everyone participates in that anxiety. Your anxiety is going up, their anxiety goes up, which causes your anxiety to go up. And then things get rigid, you get less differentiated, you get more reactive, there's there's more ill will, and people start to develop narratives about each other that are quite negative that can make it so that it's impossible or very difficult to change. So you're, you know, you're at a transition point. Are you going to be rigid? Are you going to be fused? Are you going to be undifferentiated? Are you going to be unreasonable? 
Or are you going to be flexible? And are you going to uh, find the goodness in the situation? Um, or are you going to see the situation as always negative? So that's another option is you talk with your own systems therapist. Again, I'm not telling you how to deal with it but because um, obviously I, I couldn't know that. But those are the options um, you know, that, that you can do. And by the way, um, just to go over some terms, uh, the term codependent is a word that comes from chemical dependency in which you have a dependent person, say an alcoholic person who is struggling with drinking all the time every day. And that person is dependent on alcohol, meaning that um, they depend on alcohol to function. And the codependent is the person in that person's life that participates in the dependency on the alcohol, uh, but isn't drinking themselves. They might be maybe kind of drinking, but they're not the primary dependent person. It's a co-pilot. You have the dependent, the person who's dependent on alcohol, and then you have the codependent on alcohol. And the codependent person will often do things that keep the dependency going, like chastising or judging the their partner, or by um, you know encouraging the person to drink more or something like that. There's various different ways in which a codependent will enable or, or create or perpetuate the problem. So when people use the word codependent in the colloquial, in the in outside of psychology, uh, they, they, they typically misunderstand the word codependent, and they will use the word codependent when they really should be using the word enmeshment. Enmeshment is a better word. What you're worried about or what you're observing or what you're diagnosing is that the two of them are enmeshed. They're not codependent. Um, neither one of them is dependent on a substance, um, and the other person is not the codependent. So what you're talking about is they are enmeshed. Or another way to put it is you believe that she is overly dependent on him or she is not independent enough. Codependent is a chemical dependency uh, only word, and um, don't uh, listen to the way society uses that word because they they always use it incorrectly. Now, if the language changes, I'm all for it, but the literature has not changed. Literature in psychotherapy and in chemical dependency and in family therapy and in boundaries and in roles, uh, no one uses the word codependent in the way that society tends to use it. So, you know, everyone out there, please understand that. Uh, It's normal for you to use that. But anyway, so again, just to review the options, you can pressure therapy for her or both of them or the three of you. You can pressure him to pull away. You can lean in and and compassionately try to change the system and try to help her with her emotional regulation. And you can try to bond with her so it's more tolerable. You can do nothing and accept your situation that, look, this is just him. And when he and when he does that stuff, when she calls him and he runs to her rescue, you just have a way of being like, okay, well, you know, when I decided I crossed that threshold, I had that choice, I could have left him. And I, you know, thought about it and said, you know what, I can't do anything to change it. So uh, this, I don't like it that much, but you know, what are you going to do? there's always bad things you have to accept in your partners. There, there's always things that you're going to realize after a while, like, wow, I don't think that quality is going to change in my partner. And you get to a crossroads where you're like, okay, you either accept it with the caveat of like, well, maybe I'll be able to change it in the long run, but you know, I probably won't be able to. I'm either going to accept it and be with them, or this is a deal breaker and I'm going to leave them. And if you decide to stay with them, then you kind of have to say, 
I made the choice, you know, now it doesn't mean you give up, but it kind of means like you have to accept the fact that you might not be able to change it. Otherwise you're just beating your head, head, head up against the wall. And then the other uh, option is you find your own systems therapist that coaches you on how to detriangulate and differentiate in the situation and uh, keep us updated. Let me know what you do. All right, this next bit I want to do is I talked with Tiffany Chuom, who some of you might know. I talked with her about ethics and law and whatnot, and we kind of went on a tangent while we were doing a, a different episode, and it didn't really fit with the episode, so I extracted it and uh, just wanted to play it here for you. And in, in this, um, I don't know, half-hour discussion, we talk about therapist self-disclosure, and if you're struggling with something yourself as a therapist, when do you tell your clients about it? And um, how do you tell your clients about it? It was a very interesting nuanced discussion that had to do very much with things that Tiffany was going through herself, rather than talking about it in this academic lofty manner. You know, we kind of got ground level here with actual examples. and, And I did as well. So let's just go to that. Well, one thing that happened this week, you know, so we're, we're in the midst of this whole COVID pandemic and, um, I'm big on vulnerability. Um, I think that when, you know, I think for every therapist, you have to pick and choose when you feel comfortable with self-disclosure, but I feel like part of what I've been really lucky to, to learn from in my own education was other faculty members um, in the school of social work at the University of Washington who just talked about their own struggles and how part of dismantling the stigma of mental illness is for us as professionals to talk about our own struggles. So this week, unfortunately, um, someone really close to me is getting ready to pass away. And, um, and it's somebody in, in our profession, not because of COVID, but because they had something that was pre-existing going on. And I wanted to talk a a little bit about when we're thinking about bad therapy, one of the things that I think can be bad therapy is when we have our own personal struggles going on and we are practicing therapists, but we're not being really honest with ourselves about whether or not we're in the right mental state to see our own clients. And I think that this is so relevant right now with COVID because I think people forget that therapists are people too. And there are a lot of therapists right now who have family members or who themselves have had to go get screened for COVID. And so there's a lot of, um, you know, pressure to rise to the occasion, you know, that duty calls as therapists right now in, in terms of COVID to be that first responder, to be the strength for everyone else. And that's amazing. But we also have to be brutally honest with ourselves. And I think right now on a day by day basis, ask ourselves, am I in a good state right now to be able to show up for my clients? So for myself, I, you know, when I found out yesterday that things were taking a turn for the worse and, um, you know, I'm preparing for someone to, that I love to pass away very quickly, probably the next few days. I did what I think is a responsible thing to do. And I reached out to my clients and let them know like, Hey, you know, I may not be able to see you this week and I'm going to give you as much notice, but this is something that's just very important to me as a trauma therapist, because I remember just in my foundation learning about trauma being exposed to a lot of folks in psychology. Cause I started out in trauma being trained 
in the Department of Psychology at the University of Washington. And back then, if you admitted you were struggling and, and asked for, you know, I need a day off or I need to reschedule with a client, I mean, that just was not acceptable. Um, it was seen as a weakness. It was seen as maybe you don't have what it takes. And I think there is still some, some of that you know, residual um, sentiment around today. And so I felt like this was an important thing to bring up in our discussion today. Yeah, absolutely. It's a tough call because, uh, I mean, I agree that we should all be thinking about that and that should be, uh, there should be a threshold there that we say, okay, I uh, am going to not be, one, the best therapist I could be, uh, and two, I just need time off. Like, I'm a human being too. And uh, uh, yeah, my clients might be a little upset, but um, I, you know, I deserve a, you know, a, a break because of this emotional turmoil that I'm going through. And also modeling self-care and valuing of, of the, the severe emotions that come around loss and, and worrying about someone dying. Um, the other side, because I get emails from people, clients who are emailing, not my clients, but people who are a client emailing me, talking about how their therapist will tell them stuff like this. And there's mixed responses. Some people will say they really enjoy it when their therapist self-discloses and are uh, respectful or appreciative or, you know, it's like, well, I'm going to miss my therapist, but, you know, I want them to take care of themselves and there's a balance there. But then some people will email me and say that they are, they feel mistreated somehow, that therapists should, I don't know, take their own treatment needs into consideration because for some issues, it, you can't really just like transfer to another therapist temporarily for, for a couple of weeks. And the client m might have some rejection trauma, abandonment trauma that gets triggered in that, some worry about, wait, it, 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 is this going to happen from time to time? Uh, is my, does my therapist really care about me? And that can really trigger a lot of hurt and a lot of feelings around that. Um, so do you have any... Situ any comments on that situation? Yeah, I mean, I think you make some great points in that it also depends on, you know, who you're working with and kind of on a case-by-case -case basis, right? For some clients, it if you disclose anything about uh, difficulty you're having, it may, one, make the client feel like you're not putting them first, or two, they might start worrying about you. Right. And that I think is one of the things when, when I'm thinking about what's bad therapy, one of the things I think about is the therapist who is intentionally or not allowing a shift in that power dynamic to happen where the client is now taking care of the therapist. Right. It's probably my greatest fear. And so I try to work really hard on that. It's been interesting and challenging for me because about 14 years into my 20 year career, I started to have physical disabilities that I had been in a car accident. I ended up in a wheelchair. I had a, a part of my sciatic nerve on my spine for three years. And so I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know that this branch of my sciatic nerve was on my spine. And so I would, I would just have very sporadic 
days and it got worse, but it was, a, it was a long, like drawn out decline where I ended up being in a wheelchair. And so there was all this unpredictability about my mobility. And at the time when things were really rough, I was at the VA um, here in Seattle doing my advanced practicum for clinical social work. I was working in military sexual trauma. And so as you might imagine, people that are surviving military sexual trauma are going through just the most complicated, challenging trauma and so many other things. A lot of times folks who've survived that are going to have a lot of their own physical disabilities and chronic pain and homelessness. You know, they, they have a lot of needs and it was really challenging to have to learn how to go from being able-bodied to not able-bodied and then to not have the privilege to choose when my clients saw me struggling with my mobility, right? Because I didn't have control over that. So I developed some ways around that that I think have helped and I'm happy to share them with you. But it, yeah, it's, it's so interesting to think about how do we hold that space and have safe and healthy boundaries with our clients so that they're not worrying more about us than the other way around, but also there are times where you can't hide from them what's going on, like in the case of physical disabilities. Yeah, the general guideline that I've followed, and I haven't been in a situation as severe as that, but there will be times when it's inevitable that I have to self-disclose about something. I'm trying to recall a, an example of that in my career that's not coming to mind. But the principle that is in the research and this, you know, suggestions from the experts is a self-disclosure in general should be uh, if it if if you're self-disclosing as a vol, as as an option where you don't have to self-disclose, it should be brief. It should be uh, uh, in the effort of trying to help the client. It should be uh, at least enough processed for yourself emotionally that it doesn't come out in this very chaotic, destabilizing nature. And it should be just enough information to, to get things going. And it should not promote a uh, sort of a ongoing situation where the client is uh, or the sessions are focused on the, on the therapist issues. Now, when it comes to your own issues, so you're, you're kind of forced to self-disclose something. And so you can still kind of follow those principles of, you know, it's brief. Um, you're thinking about the client as you are self-disclosing. So it'd be something like, so as you can see, I'm struggling with my mobility right now and I'm now in a wheelchair. And, you know, I don't want you to worry about me. I have my people that I talk to. I have my physicians. I'm, I'm doing okay. Um, but just know that because I got in a car accident, um, uh, you know, now I'm in a wheelchair. And if you want to talk about it, we can talk about it. But I just want to let you know that, um, you know, I don't want to just not talk about it. <laughs> um, and then if the client starts asking a lot of questions, you know, maybe you answer, you know, a little bit here and there. But if it starts to become protracted, you'd be, you know, I just, I get that you're worried about me, but I have my people. Um, I'm doing okay. You don't have to worry about me. Um, th these sessions are about you. I'm fully present, even though I'm in a wheelchair, to listen to you and to hear you. Everything's, everything's cool. And, you know, we can check in on, on this as we go. But, you know, just kind of gauging, because some clients might just be like, Oh, you're in a wheelchair. Anyway, you know, and just kind of, you know, they don't even, it doesn't even phase them. 
other people might be like, well, wait, what's, what does this mean? Are, are you going to die? Or, you know, are you okay? Are you in pain? And, and that's okay too. It's good. It's human empathy, but ha- having a sense of gauging that in your clients and kind of helping them. But again, just enough information so that you're acknowledging it and it kind of puts their worries to rest. Um, and maybe a self-disclosure of just like, you know, I know you have struggled because you got in an accident too. And, you know, we can relate <laughs> on how these complications get very complicated and uh, protracted and doctors don't always know what to do. And it's, it can be kind of demoralizing. You know, now I can't walk, which sucks. I can relate to that. You can self-disclose on that level, um, but always trying to gauge like, okay, am I going a little too far? Should I save this conversation for my spouse or my therapist or my supervisor? Um, you know, it's a complicated thing, I guess, right? Yeah, I think um, so many good things that you just said. Um, one is, I think, kind of going back to one of your first comments. Yes, I think part of it, it has to be as a therapist. Well, how long, how long will whatever's going on with you impact you? Because, for example, like, let's say um, I was experiencing grief right now and I knew that, wow, I'm going to not be, I'm going to be really unsure of my own mental stability for the next month. I might need to refer my clients out. That's, in my opinion, too much time. So for me, it's one thing to say, hey, can we reschedule this session this week? But if it's a pattern of that because of whatever else is going on with you, that's where I think you really, you got to have consultation. You might need to refer people out. This is something I'm seeing with people right now with COVID is, is, is clinicians going, oh man, I'm at home and I'm struggling so much to understand how to do video therapy for the first time. And it's, and I'm so anxious and, you know, and everything else is going on and they're keeping these clients, you know, we are not the only therapist our clients can see, and we're not always going to be the best choice for our clients. I'm a firm believer that clients are going to always outgrow their therapists. And that's part of the beauty of the work that we get to do. We get to bear witness to them for a certain amount of time, but it it is when you feel as a a therapist, like you're the only one, or or if a client says, I've had clients see me, I think, I feel like you're the only one that gets me or like no one else can understand me like you. If that's a theme that keeps coming up, my, my red flags are going up because you know, perpetuating an unhealthy level codependency, right, is harmful to the client. There are a lot of clinicians, I think, out there, especially folks who are newer in their career, who, who that flattery is very alluring, and they enjoy it, and they want it, and they don't recognize that staying within that can be harmful. Right. As I gain more confidence in my own clini- clinical ability, I am much more ready to involve other professionals with, with my clients. When I was first starting out, it would be an insecurity of mine. Like, well, if I uh, involve another clinician, uh, will my client like that person more than me? Will that clinician scrutinize what I'm doing and find that I am indeed a complete fraud um, and an imposter, <laughs> um, which is the way most therapists feel in the beginning of their career, if not throughout, really. Um, so yeah, uh, ab- absolutely involving other people. Um, 
I don't know if you want to talk about this before we go on to your, your story in the past, but just sticking with the present, uh, do you want to talk about what you're going through right now emotionally? Yeah, actually I did. There were a couple of things I want to say too um, about your, your uh, later comment. <clears throat> so one thing is, yeah, I think like when I, when I'm dealing with my own physical mobility issues, disability stuff, it's not just impairment with mobility, but chronic pain. I'm doing really well compared to how bad I used to be doing. Um, but there are still times, it's not very often, it's maybe three times a year right now where my pain level will just get to a, a level where it's so high, I can't, I won't be able to put the attention on the client, right? And that's not fair to the client. But as you were saying, one of the things I do is I'm upfront with this with my client. So when I first start seeing a client, this is part of, you know, establishing the norms in our relationship. So I let them know in advance hey, there may be times where you see me able-bodied and other times where I'm having difficulty getting around. I, I do have physical disabilities. I do have chronic pain. I have a great care team. I have great support. I'm comfortable with this. And I just want you to know in case it happens, you're not surprised because it's not your job to worry about me, right? And so I think that helps a lot. However, inevitably, if, if I am, let's say, because sometimes... I'll have more difficulty moving around, but I won't have an increase in pain. And people tend to assume like, oh, if you're, if you're having difficulty moving around, that looks uncomfortable, right? So there'll still be that, are you okay? And I actually see that as such a wonderful opportunity therapeutically to help my clients look at what other places in their life do they find that they want to get into that caregiver role when the other person is not asking for that. What's that about? You know, mm -hmm. and, and sometimes too, um, if I have a client who's really uncomfortable with disabilities because they haven't been exposed to that or the way that that was addressed in their family, I, I reframe it to, oh, it sounds like that you're not quite sure what to say to me right now. Are you feeling uncomfortable? How does that feel in your body right now? Explain that. How is that showing up for you? Let's sit with that, you know, and just giving the client permission to feel safe saying, I feel, I don't know what I'm supposed to say to you. I feel uncomfortable. Right. And then I say, what are the other ways that disability has showed up in your life for loved ones um, or in your own life? Right. And even give some education about what is disability. Cause I think a lot of people don't realize really pretty much all of us have experienced some sort of disability in our life at some point. So I think there's a way to shift this and therapeutically get to see just um, the ways in which our clients struggle, you know, with witnessing the pain of others and health issues that their loved ones have or times in their life when they've struggled with pain. And so I actually feel very, very confident that I am a far better clinician now because of my disabilities. I did not realize that would happen but especially when working with folks like veterans who have so, they're so high prone to spinal injuries, being able to, to sit with them in severe pain and not feel like I need to come to their rescue. I don't need to feel sorry for them. Um, I, I just, I don't, I, I think that personal experience I have has given me this emotional intelligence and this intellectual understanding that I don't know I, I could have gotten any other way. Yeah. I was just thinking this last night that 
if there is a God or at least the universe, I think is purposely inflicting me with various different ailments so that I can relate to people and, and help them. Uh, like insomnia, I've been suffering from a little bit of it recently. And I, in the past, I would have colleagues, friends, family members, or clients who would be suffering from sleep issues. And I never had sleep issues. So I would, you know, do my regular sleep coaching that I do with people. And, um, and I had a, a particular bent of like, well, you know, if we do these things, it should work. And I've come to realize that it was certain sleep problems, you can do all the things. There's like 150 things you can do and nothing will work. And uh, I have a new appreciation of that and I feel bad for the kind of attitude I had before with people, particularly a close friend of mine who suffered from a lot of sleep problems. And I now realize like, wow, uh, the next time I have someone who's suffering from this, I'm going to be much more aware of just like, look, let's do all we can. And you've probably already done a lot of things and it's possible that nothing will work. And, and that just fucking sucks, man. Like it is rough. Um, it's demoralizing and life sucks sometimes. Um, chronic pain, similar thing. I, I had, a, I have a, an old football injury, uh, in my back, a broken bone in my back that causes some pinching of a nerve. And, I went through a couple of years where I had uh, lower back pain and, you know, shooting pain down my legs. And, and I was like, you know, you hear people talk about back pain or, you know, those kinds of things. And, and when you feel it and just the constant nature of it, you know, you're, you're, you go to sleep at night and you lay down in bed and you're like, ah, you know, cuddling up with my pillow. And then all of a sudden pain. And you're just like, there it is fucking a, like all fucking day long, just pain, 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 pain. And then the, the notion of like, well, maybe this is the rest of my life. It's just going to get worse. You know, like this is just phase one of 10 phases where it's just going to be a slow decline and in, into, you know, uh, uh, just a horrific demoralizing pain. Uh, uh, what's going to happen to me? Am I going to be, you know, mobilized? You know, it, all these, uh, you know, emotions that, that come with it. And now when I talk with clients who have uh, pain issues, I, I, I feel like I can relate a lot more. Thank God my pain, I don't know why it just went away. I did a lot of physical therapy. I don't know if that helped, but um, I have a feeling the universe just said, okay, you've experienced that enough. Let's move on to the next thing that you're going to suffer from. <laughs> so let's, let's, let's let you suffer from everything kind of for a short period of time. Um, so yeah, it was funny. I was just thinking that last night. Another question I have for you, Tiffany is right now, you know, you're going through an emotional experience that, and I think it might be helpful if you're willing to talk about, you know, the, the grief, the fear, the sadness that, and how that exactly interferes in the moment of a session. You know, you're, mm -hmm. you're listening to someone because grief is overwhelming. Right. Uh, and so for therapists to understand that, and maybe for clients to understand that it's not just an intellectual thing, like, well, I'm grieving. So I want to take a, it, you know, it, it's a real, emotional mechanism that uh, interferes. Can you describe that for us? 
Yeah. So I think, um, I think you're right. So much of this is not about intellectually knowing you need self care. It's, um, monitoring emotionally how you're doing. And so one of the things I was thinking about is, well, you know, a lot, I mean, I think everybody right now has folks in their life who are elderly, who are at higher risk for COVID. And so there's a lot of pot, there's a lot of potential right now for that to come up in therapy sessions for clients to be worried about folks who are elderly or the elderly are getting sick. And the person that I am losing right now is also elderly. And so what I'm noticing is that can be somewhat of a trigger for me. And I've noticed in the last two days uh, that I've cried at times in, in the middle of the day, like very, you know, it kind of caught me off guard sort of thing. And I don't think it's necessarily a, a quote unquote bad therapy to cry in a session, but I think it is, it, it is not helpful if you're crying in a session about your own stuff, right? That's, that doesn't have anything to do with the client. I have cried with clients in session, not that often, but more um, when I did, it was like crying from the beauty of, of just like their, just some of the heroicism, just some of the amazing strength and resilience. Um, but I think you have to be so careful with that. So for example, when I'm working with veterans, I am not comfortable going into a session if I don't trust my ability to, to maintain and not cry because culturally, if I start crying with a veteran, I mean, I don't mean to generalize each vet veteran is different, but a lot of, a lot of folks, especially folks who have been through combat. If you start crying as a therapist, you could, uh, the, the, that could be so offensive to that client because of, of how military culture is. And, you know, even when you're talking with combat veterans, like I'll talk to medics who worked in, 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 you know, combat zones, you know, bullets are flying right over them and they will be adamant. They are not a combat veteran because they are not an infantry men. They're not on, you know, the front lines. They're not the one holding the gun and to call them a combat veteran is disrespectful to them in terms of the culture of how they see this. Right. And so me crying, with someone who's thinking about that, right? It, it just could actually make things far worse because they could feel like I'm feeling sorry for them. And, and that is the last thing you want to do with a veteran. They, they, yeah. A lot of veterans don't even want you to say, you know, like if the, they go to the mall and people walk up and say, thank you for their service, that can be actually really offensive to some veterans. So, you know, I, I think a lot about well, what kind of clients am I working with right now? Some yeah. clients I can be more vulnerable in that way. Some I really can't. And so all of that kind of goes into me, me making these decisions. But I also talk to my clinical supervisors about this. I talk to my colleagues about this. You know, and I also say to my family members when I'm having personal issues like, hey, I may not be doing as well right now and I may not even see it. So if you notice like, I'm more moody or I'm, you know, whatever. Will you let me know? Um, I, I think, I think it's important as therapists that we do ask others around us to also hold us accountable and let us know when we're maybe not our quote unquote norm. Yeah. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. 
You know, we've talked about some pretty heavy things today, abortion and grief and enmeshment and self-disclosure and suffering. And I just hope you're all taking care of yourself. And and when you feel like you want to talk about things, you know, talk about it with people who care um, because it's really important to get that stuff off your chest. Don't don't suffer in silence, you know, and email me. Go to our website, psychologyinseattle.com, fill out the Contact Us page. That's the best way to contact me. Also, you can go to the fan page and, you know, vent there, the Facebook fan page. You, you can ch- talk with the other fans. Um, there's a lot, there's a you know pretty wonderful community that will be able to help you there as well. And take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really do.